Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing COPD. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine. And I'm Charlie. I'm one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine and general medicine. Welcome back uh, to Take Orally, Charlie. Hello. Uh, so, uh, a few months back, it seems much longer than that, we uh, went through the asthma podcast. Uh, and today we are going to tackle uh, COPD. Seems only right. Uh, so, f- first up, Charlie, um, what is COPD and who gets it? So, COPD stands for Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease, and it basically is what it says. It's a, it's a chronic condition that affects the lungs. In similar to asthma, it's an obstructive pathology, um, so it's obstruction of the airways. Um, there is still an element of reversibility, um, but not fully reversible. Um, as I say, it's progressive, so generally um, might start off with quite mild symptoms and progresses uh, into more severe disease. Um, it traditionally was um, divided into sort of an emphysematous picture and a chronic bronchitis picture, that definition has sort of disappeared a little bit mm. and most people do have elements of both, that idea of um, uh, destruction of the alveoli mm. as well as this sort of chronic inflammation and narrowing of the bronchi that causes that mm. uh, airway obstruction. Now the most common cause which everyone knows about is smoking um, and I think 90% of people who have COPD are either smokers or ex-smokers. Um, not all smokers, however, progress to get COPD, and it, it may be just sort of 20 or 30% that actually get COPD. There is an occupational link, so toxins, chemicals um, can also cause a COPD like picture, um, and there is potentially a sort of genetic link or p- genetic predisposition, um, something called alpha, anti- uh, alpha 1 antitrypsin deficiency can predispose people to getting this sort of airway disease. Um, I think now there's about 3 million people they reckon in the UK that have COPD, 2 million of these possibly undiagnosed, Um, majority of people get diagnosed over 50 um, and it's very rare really to have COPD under the age of 35. Mm. So I think you you may encounter patients who may have been diagnosed before the the term of COPD came about, so saying I have emphysema doctor or Mm. my GP's told me I've got bronchitis doctor and and actually it all fits under this umbrella term now. Yeah, and that's not the only exclusive pathophysiology here, Mm. Um, it's the main ones that we see um, and as I say you'll see a combination of both on CT CT scans. And um, the alpha-1 antitrypsin um, is a protease inhibitor. Did a bit of reading before we came in, uh, and also is, is uh, linked it's, uh, to hepatitis, mm-hmm. uh, cirrhosis, and um, also linked to inflammatory bowel disease. Yeah, so that's sort of this overall inflammatory process mm. of the body. Cool. Um, so, as I think we said before, shortness of breath, such a common presentation in A and E. What sort of the key history bits of our patient with shortness of breath that would point towards uh, COPD? So, I mean, one thing to think about is the fact that you may only see them in secondary care after a period of time. Um, they may or may not have received a label by this time, but you may get that idea of progressive shortness of breath. 
the idea that initially it was mild and exertional breathless breathlessness only um, and eventually sort of progressing to sort of breathlessness even at rest at minimal exertion um, and there is this MRC dyspnea scale which rates from sort of one to five five being breathless even when dressing sort of minimal activity the other history bits to look out for are the idea of this sort of recurrent cough, people who really can't shift a cough. Um, you'll find that it's very productive, um, most commonly in the morning they will bring up a lot of sputum and the things to look out for for exacerbations is that quantity or colour of sputum changing. Um, it's similar to asthma, them both being obstructive airways diseases, look out for that chest, chest tightness, the wheezing as well. Um, the other thing that happens with COPD patients and that idea of progressiveness of the disease is that they will also encounter frequent exacerbations and actually that can be part of the diagnostic criteria, that idea of frequent sort of winter episodes of bronchitis. Mm. Um, with the progressive nature of the disease as well, you will also see sort of elements of right-sided heart failure as you get sort of vascular disease in the lungs as well. Um, that term is core pulmonale. Um, and therefore you may get patients presenting with evidence of heart failure as well. So that the core pulmonale picture might be a, a right heart failure as well as showing signs of obstructive lung disease? Yeah, well. absolutely. So you'd still get the wheezing, the chest tightness, the shortness of breath, the productive cough, um, but you will see patients that get the ankle swelling. Um, obviously that might be more peripheral edema, mm. but you might see pleural effusions and mm. some sort of pulmonary edema as well. Okay. Also, uh, you know, right, um, well, heart failure also uh, condition showing a progressive shortness of breath on exertion mm. with um, increasing limitation on, yeah. on, uh, on uh, life quality. Okay, um, so we, we talked a bit um, in, the, in the asthma podcast about what features might point towards an, an asthma diagnosis. Shall we just again just go over again at, at sort of looking at COPD versus asthma? So what, mm. what clues might, might point towards COPD rather than asthma? So, I mean, the main thing really is to think about the history in these patients and the age that they're presenting. Um, as I say, it'd be very rare for someone to actually be diagnosed with COPD under the age of 35, whereas, as we know, asthmatics tend to get diagnosed at a younger age. The symptoms they will get is more that sort of nocturnal, that um, nocturnal symptoms, the cough, wheeze at night, and a variable sort of diurnal um, change in their symptoms, whereas mm. COPD patients tend to have sort of persistent and progressive breathlessness and as I say will nearly always have a smoking history. Okay. Um, so again it's history, 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 you can't Absolutely. escape your history can no. you? Um, so okay we, we, we have a, a, a patient, they, they are a smoker or you know, ex-smoker, we suspect COPD but how are we actually going to definitively diagnose it in our patient? Mm. Well, interestingly, I mean, the clinical symptoms really are the um, most important part of the diagnostic process. That idea of a smoking history, uh, even exposure to secondhand smoke is a really important thing to sort of um, elicit as well, or the occupational exposure, which I mentioned before. Bedside tests, spirometry is really important, and we'll go on to that with um, sort of the definition, sort of facts and figures um, in a minute. Um, but that idea of looking for an obstructive deficit in contrast to what you would see in pulmonary fibrosis where you'd get that restrictive mm. um, deficit. Um, important to always do an ECG. Some people will present with angina and breathlessness. So make sure you're doing an ECG, certainly in those patients who have the risk factors, the 
over 60s smokers make sure you're excluding cardiac pathology also ACS risk factors absolutely course, yeah. um, I mean a simple thing in terms of people who present with that productive cough as well think about your sputum cultures that's also just a treatment point of view in terms the microbiology of, department well, well, thank you for, yeah. for reminding us on that one yeah um, further tests in hospital we'll do ABGs and you might see that sort of chronic respiratory acidosis that high PCO2 high bicarb um, Imaging wise, they'll nearly always have had a chest x-ray at some point, that two week wait for a productive cough. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'll see that hyper expansion of the chest. Um, we move on then to CT where you'll see, as I mentioned before, the emphysematous changes, that chronic inflammation. Um, and finally, with regards to the sort of edema and again, differentiating between COPD and heart failure, you might think about echo. And actually, that is a really important part of the BTS guidelines is to be excluding other pathology. So you mentioned um, arterial blood gases there, and I suppose the the, the classic picture you're going to see there is a, a hypercapnic patient, but with a, a, a raised um, serum bicarb in order to compensate for that, mm-hmm. so a metabolic compensation for a respiratory acidosis. Yeah, I mean, certainly in, I think it's most often the later stages, but again, not everybody. Um, you will see that CO2 retention and that chronic metabolic compensation, um, which we then see sort of acutely deteriorated, deteriorating to give a sort of respiratory acidosis. Um, but there are COPD patients who don't retain CO2, um, and they're the ones who we sort of ac- sort of still accept the SATs greater than 94, rather than the retainers where we are more controlled with our oxygen therapy and sort of accept that it's 88 to 92. So that's that uh, concept of the hypoxic drive mm. yep. uh, in those patients who are retaining CO2 yep. rather than a hypercapnic drive. Absolutely. So you will see, um, I mean, a, a chronic retainer who is given too much oxygen will retain more um, carbon dioxide, um, become more drowsy, more acidotic, and I mean, become sort of, sort of pre-terminal events. So it is a really important thing to be aware of. This is something that uh, I have seen in A&E um, a few times, the um, over-generous use of oxygen mm. pre-hospital uh, on a patient where it's maybe not known they're CO- that they yeah. have COPD or, um, and, you know, a very drowsy doctor and, and you, you, you actually, um, you get these looks when you actually turn off the oxygen that there they're on go. and suddenly, oh, where am I? I uh, thought I was in, the, yeah, so. Well, that's the thing, so many are undiagnosed that, yeah. I mean, no one's doing anything wrong giving them oxygen. Hypoxia will kill someone with undiagnosed respiratory condition and sats of 80. Of course, you're going to give them oxygen. Mm. Mm. And um, that's certainly something, again, when I'm speaking in A&E onto uh, the respiratory team, like you said, this, this concept, you know, if, if I have a patient who is, uh, you know, a smoker coming in, and I look at their gas, and I an ABG, and they they do have maybe mm. ratio two or a, a raised bicarb. I'm starting to think, well, hang on, this mm. patient may be an undiagnosed mm. patient with COPD. Um, so um, we we've got these methods for um, diagnosing, but then how do we definitively, you know, clinically define um, COPD? So as I say, the, the hard numbers are based on the spirometry um, and the two things we look at are the FEV1 and the FVC and in fact it's the ratio of FEV1 to FVC that gives us our definition <clears throat> and the airflow obstruction will be a, a, a reduced ratio, ratio, so a ratio less than 1 um, and the definition is less than 0.7. Now, you can still diagnose COPD in someone who has a, a ratio or an FEV1 greater than 80% predicted, um, 
as long as it's in the pres presence of convincing symptoms. Okay. And that FEV1 will then guide us to how severe our patient's yeah. COPD is? So we tend to say, I mean, there are different classifications um, and interestingly the definitions tend to be based on a sort of post-bronchodilator FEV1, so that means I mean, you've given them salbutamol to assess that reversibility. Um, someone who has an FEV1 um, of sort of 50 to 80% they're predicted, it's sort of diagnosed as sort of mild or moderate in some cases, um, level of COPD. You've got that 30 to 50, sort of moderate to severe, less than 30% predicted at FEV1 is sort of severe, or in some classifications even very severe. Okay, so um, we'll just, we'll go into the acute management, but, but first um, I think, you know, what will be the, the chronic management then, or the community-based mm. management, the secondary management for a patient coming in with um, COPD? So needless to say, the simple things first, lifestyle measures, stop smoking, reduce that occupational exposure if you can. Um, even if they already have COPD, it's still to benefit. Even if they already have it, um, it, would, it would just sort of continue to exacerbate um, the disease. So stopping smoking is, is one of the most important things that they can do. Um, another thing that is nice guidelines, and actually I think the only thing with any proven benefit is pulmonary rehabilitation in terms of mortality. Um, uh, I mean that's just breathing exercises and, and it's something that a lot of people everyone should be offered and a lot of people do take up uh, medications wise uh, bronchodilators so your short acting salbutamol in the same way you would with asthma um, or long acting bronchodilators as well salmetrol we use too um, again you'd use your inhaled corticosteroids um, in a sort of uh, chronic management um, and what you'll see more commonly used in COPD as a sort of long-term management, as opposed to asthma, is the use of long-acting muscarinic antagonists, so that's teotropium. Um, again, something different to asthma is the mucolytic, so carbocysteine, you'll see a lot of people on, and that's just to help with the, the, the sort of masses, butane production that they get. So again, if you see a patient who, oh, I have asthma doctor, and you yeah. maybe see them in their, you know, in their um, yeah. drug box, you think, uh, maybe not. Yeah, um, and again, your history will probably point in that direction yeah. as well. Um, some people may need sort of systemic corticosteroids long term as well um, and certainly you'll see patients who have recurrent acute prescriptions of steroids needing weaning doses as well in the same way you would with asthma so yeah. um, that's a really important thing to consider don't forget the gastro, gastro protection with your steroids as well very important yes um, and finally the, the other things that are considered in COPD in particular certainly think about it being a progressive disease and, and occurring sort of later in life and potentially being a sort of pre-terminal diagnosis is the use of long-term oxygen therapy and again that's um, based on a criteria of having uh, chronic hypoxia um, and that will be installed into their home and they can have long-term oxygen therapy and even have canisters to go out as well um, and in some cases we do use non-invasive ventilation sort of chronically as well um, particularly as I say for the hypercapnic COPD patients. Okay so we'll talk a bit more about NIV mm. um, in a little while. Um, so that's our patients in the community and I think very useful um, to take that sort of information to get an idea, you know, is my patient coming in with COPD on oxygen at home? Yeah. If so, for how long and how much, etc, etc. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so the 
acute management then of our patient coming in with an exacerbation of his or her COPD? So I think it's important to think about the fact that you might have an infective exacerbation, which is what perhaps we're more familiar with, so the idea of even a viral exacerbation knocking someone's COPD off. But people will have complications of their COPD for other reasons as well. Mm. So that COPD patient who has had codeine acutely for arthritis, knock off their respiratory drive, you're going to again send them into that decompensated respiratory failure. So do just think about the cause of them decompensating. Um, in terms of the sort of infective side of things, which we'll talk about primarily, a lot of COPD patients will have what they call rescue treatment in the community. So they will have a steroid and a antibiotic that they will have at home to initiate as soon as they get symptoms. And that may be how they're managed acutely. Um, often that will have occurred and two days down the line they're still not well enough and they will end up coming into hospital. So it's just to be aware that they may not be on those two sort of chronically but they may have started them acutely. So the treatment's the same once you come into hospital. Um, you're going to think about steroids, whether or not they can take them orally or you'd give them IV, so prednisolone orally, hydrocortisone IV. Similar doses as your asthma exacerbations as well. So I mean, a lot of people get prescribed 30 of pred, some people say 40, some even go up to 50 milligrams, um, and either 100 or 200 of hydrocortisone. You're going to get your nebulizers in there early as well, so again, back-to-back salbutamol, ipotropium as well, um, and then you're going to think about your antibiotics as well. So go according to your guidelines, obviously, get your chest x-ray done. If there is a mnemonic process, you're going to go with your pneumonia guidelines. If there isn't, think about your infective exacerbations, COPD tends to be sort of doxycycline or levofloxacin, I think, nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, most important part in terms of the um, sort of diagnostic aspect of that acute exacerbation is going to be the ABG. How much have they decompensated? So are they now acidotic with a type 2 respiratory failure? Are they a candidate for invasive ventilation? If they're very drowsy with that respiratory failure, can they maintain their airway? Or are we going to think about non-invasive ventilation? Um, now, um, you've just, we've talked together for quite a few times uh, for your sins. Um, uh, what I say to a lot of uh, medical students, the thing that will make you stand out even better as an F1 is if you know the, the next step of a condition. Yeah, so, really. you know, um, I've started my inhalers, I've started the steroids, etc. Uh, rather than going to the med reg, help, help, you actually go, mm. well, I'm now thinking about NIV, because mm. that makes you sound mm. so much better. So. What is NIV and when do we start to think that our patient with COPD needs NIV? So non-invasive ventilation or NIV um, technically is your BiPAP, your bi-level ventilation, bi-level positive pressure. Um, And that's used purely for the respiratory acidosis as well. And if we're going technically here, they've got to have a pH between 7.25 and 7.35. Now, what that achieves is a, a, a high inspiratory pressure and a slightly lower and a lower expiratory pressure, and you get a tidal volume essentially. So you're helping them blow off that CO2. With a, sometimes you need a fixed rate on that um, BiPAP, so you're achieving at least sort of 16 breaths per minute to get rid of that CO2 and recover that acidosis. Um, as I say, some COPD patients may even go on to invasive ventilation but 
you do have to weigh up the sort of comorbid status of those individual individuals and whether or not they are a level three candidate, mm. whether or not weaning from an invasive ventilation strategy is going to be possible. And what you'll see in those instances where it is, is that they'll be weaned onto NIV. And often there is that decision at the point of them having NIV acutely, whether or not they need it chronically. And generally speaking, it will be the ones who have had that acute exacerbation where they've required NIV and they've needed to be discharged with nocturnal NIV. Yeah, and um, I think it's important to point out that not everybody is a candidate for NIV as well. Well, yeah, so again, it, I mean, whenever you're thinking about high level of care, be it level one, level two for NIV, level three for invasive ventilation, you do need to consider whether it's appropriate for that individual. You're sort of 96 year old who um, has every comorbidity under the sun and, and this is her 10th admission in the last couple of months putting her through something which potentially is as stressing as NIV, which it can be, not everyone tolerates it, might not be the most suitable option. And um, there's a clear distinction here then between our asthmatic patients where you, the, the ventilation oh, is... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in an asthmatic who is even starting to have a normal COP, CO2, so i.e. they are tiring and, and not hyperventilating as much as they should um, they actually need to be um, reviewed by the intensive care team and they would be intensive care candidates they generally speaking are younger this is an atopic disease this is not uh, sort of your comorbid 60 70 80 year olds who have every cardiac risk factor and um, the sort of progressive uh, chronic nature of the disease means that they are not level 3 candidates often whereas your asthmatics near enough always will be. Mm. Yeah, so you know, your patient getting NIV will only be able to continue that in a level two, an, an HDU environment. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are patients, as I say, who will have NIV at home. Yeah. If they are independent with it, they can come in and, and have it on a normal If you're starting it acutely though, acutely, newly, yeah. it needs to be in an HDU setting. Um, uh, I think what I've said in previous podcasts is that we never use NIV though for asthmatics. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, if anyone's ever seen them, it's not a particularly nice mask. The patients, no. if they're confused, they may not tolerate it. There's a contraindication as mm -hmm. well. Um, pneumothorax, bowel obstruction, any problems with the face yep. if there have been injuries, mm -hmm. injuries there as well. And there is a, a full list of yeah, contraindications. And the other thing is that it can drop your blood pressure as well. So it, it is a balance. Um, but you do need to think about if they don't have an appropriate blood pressure, is it appropriate to start NIV? You might drop it further. Um, GCS, I think, as, as you've already alluded to, is, is one of those sort of relative contraindications. So someone has a GCS of even less than 13, it can be very difficult to get them either to understand what the NIV and that very tight-fitting mask is all about and get them to tolerate it and keep it on. Um, so I mean, we, we look at primarily to our, uh, the primary respiratory problem now, looking at uh, with COPD. Um, are there any other complications that that can come about that we that we need to, to keep in the back of our mind and think mm. about? So one of the very common things is is this idea of bullet buller. Um, so it's a bullous lung disease, and actually these bullets will occur periphery of the lung. Um, and actually, if these pop and they can pop spontaneously, you get a pneumothorax. Um, and as you've already said, that is a contraindication to NIV. So very important reason to be having a chest x-ray 
uh, in all COPD patients who you might be considering NIV. Um, we've already said they're ex incredibly prone to exacerbations and may have frequent admissions, particularly in the winter with exacerbations. Um, and along with that, you may see that idea of respiratory failure, either significant hypoxia or hypercapnia and hypoxia, so type 2 respiratory failure. Um, we've talked a bit about core pulmonale, the idea that this progresses to a right-sided heart strain, heart failure. Um, again, it's, it's a chronic condition, so you get that hypertrophy and failure of the right side um, of the heart. One thing we haven't mentioned yet is the idea of secondary polycythemia, so the idea that that chronic hypoxia is causing overproduction of the red blood cells to increase that oxygen carrying capacity. Um, so you'll see people with HBs of 180, 190. Um, and this can either cause symptoms such as headaches um, or even just increase their risk of um, sort of venous thromboembolism because of the sticky nature of the blood. Plus they may be not very active as well. Well, so. yeah, exactly. Um, and one thing just to think about, not necessarily a complication of COPD, it doesn't progress to carcinoma, but that smoking history mm. um, may um, cause a carcinoma. And whilst they're isolated, people may, may not recognise the shortness of breath or hemoptysis as, as sort of red flag symptoms if they've already got a sort of chronic progressive lung disease. So if symptoms are changing, things are new, hemoptysis always being a red flag symptom, it's worth thinking about the more sinister diagnoses. I mean, that concept of the of Buller of a, of a secondary pneumothorax mm -hmm. is, is something we explored in the Spontaneous Pneumothorax um, podcast. And uh, yeah, just, just anecdotally, we had, we had a gentleman who was brought in and um, a, a week um, following a, a discharge after having a secondary pneumothorax, and he, he came back in very short of breath known COPD and uh, uh, shocking gas and we're bringing the uh, the BiPAP machine ready but mm. then I was like I don't like how quiet one side of his chest is and luckily we, we did get the, the yeah. chest x-ray and, and he was a, a pneumothorax so yeah I think that the uh, chest x-ray there is very very important. Absolutely and, and hopefully in that case as soon as you put that chest strain in mm. you would actually that's the appropriate treatment thing about NIV is it's actually it's a holding measure really you you should only really be putting someone on NIV if you're expecting them to be getting off it i.e. you're treating the underlying reason for the exacerbation so yeah how long are patients usually on NIV for in your experience it'll depend it really does um I mean we get a whole mix of patients we get all the COPD patients but you'll also get the neuromuscular patients as well mm. and when you think about type 2 respiratory failure in a neuromuscular patient now that's obviously it a fully progressive disease and actually it's not exacerbations that are making them decompensate it's the, it's the muscular failure so they stay on it or they, they sort of progress to 24-7 NIV now you COPD patients though um, they may be on it for sort of 24 hours for a couple of days um, may not need to be that long some people come in they have it overnight and they're off it by the next day but what you'll see for that weaning process is that they might be on and off it for a couple of days and you wean by time rather than pressures so it might be a couple of hours off, a couple of hours on, and then day off, night on, and then sort of wean from that perspective. And you'll be doing serial ABGs during that time? That's the benefit of Heartlines. Um, and the other reason why it needs to be in a level one, level two area is that we can use arterial tracing and that those arterial sort of access points to get serial ABGs. 
Feels we put um, NIV is. I mean, you've mentioned other causes of, of type two respiratory mm. failure as well. Um, and so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in the A and E environments. I've seen it in uh, patients with. Um, um, uh, well, no, there was a patient who came who came in with an opiate overdose, but he actually went on to be ventilated. He had a, a massive um, a CO two of twenty four um, wow. through uh, opiate overdose. Um, but I've also I've seen NIV started in patients with really bad uh, CCF, really bad mm-hmm. um, congestive cardiac failure, yeah. and showing a, a type two respiratory failure on the gas. Well, yeah. hello, and uh, NIV being a benefit to those patients mm-hmm. as well. I think, in I mean the the baseline for NIV is that if they are a type two picture, BiPAP is appropriate. Um, we know that CPAP can be used for sort of pulmonary edema, heart failure, yeah. but as soon as you go into that hypercapnic heart failure and, and sometimes it will be an overlap syndrome you'll either see them have a bit of obesity hyperventilation on the top of that or even COPD again we're talking about the risk factors being the same here then you'd use your BiPAP so irrespective of cause BiPAP is, is possibly an option in a respiratory acidosis. That was the Take Orally COPD podcast you can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we'll put up links to guidelines mentioned and you can contact us to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.